I'm your host, DJ, along with the brothers, Money Nathan, and the man himself from the UK, Frank. And we are here to bring you a Sunday morning edition of none other than our very special guest, Graham Randall. We're going to get to him in a second, but uh, Nathan, uh, despite my difficulty sleeping last night, how are you this morning, uh, sir? Uh, Wide awake now, thank you. A little coffee coffee here. Um, Really excited to talk to Graham. It's been a while since we've had him on the show. Yep. We're huge fans of Graham. Uh, the guy is incredible, and uh, we're lucky to have him on. And also lucky to have Frank. Frank, it's good to Woo! see you again and to catch up with you. This is going to be a great morning show. So, I mean, happy Sunday, everybody. And and ba- uh, joining us again, uh, thankfully, he's he's got some time in this very busy schedule he's got going on. The host, right? The host of UFO Thinker Podcast. Frank, part of the uh, Cab Podcast Network. Uh, my man Frank, what's up, brother? Yeah, doing pretty good, mate. Pretty good, as you said. It's been a hectic couple of months, really. I mean, yeah, my my life outside of the UFO stuff's been a bit, bit on the busy side, but um, I'm I'm a bit more relaxed now, and I got a little bit more time, so it's great to be back. And uh, I've got my hay fever has kicked in this morning, um, with a with a passion. It's that time of year for me. I'm not exactly sure. I, I always look into this each year. We'll hit the snoot. Uh-oh, but whatever, froze, but he's back. There you go. Oh, go I'm, I'm back. Yeah, yeah. So I was just saying, whatever pollen it is that I'm allergic to um, is now in abundance in the atmosphere around my house. So I might sneeze a few times today. I'll try and mute myself if I do. But other than that, I'm doing pretty good. I think that adds something to the show. I really like that, you know, that. <laughs> it's organic. Yeah, it's something, something cool Auth- It's authentic. It. <laughs> it is. All right. We got a couple people in the chat. First of all, I want to say hello to Julie. Good morning, Julie. Thanks for being here early. Uh, Gerald Greenwood is here. Mick Ashworth was first up in the joint uh, before any of us came on. Uh, Mick was already here. Uh, man, I'll tell you what, guys. Uh, I put it on the cab, the cab chat, but Mick has some amazing uh, experiences with uh, speaking, uh, using that spirit box and contacting spirits who are in turn having other conversations with other spirits while he's on. It is amazing. And look at that Ryan Sprague in the joint. What's up, gangster? <laughs> All right. Sprague awesome. All right. So um, so our, our guest uh, of honor this morning, like uh, basically uh, Nathan said to me, we got to get Graham back on. We gotta, I'm like, yeah, man, it's it's been time. We got to get Graham on, see what the hell's on his mind. Uh, we're going to see uh, Frank wild out a little bit about NASA uh, <laughs> and Sean Kirkpatrick. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, without further ado, this brother right here is the author. He just holds a fourteen. Uh oh, we lost your, I lost your audio, DJ. <laughs> Was it just me, or did everybody else? No, he dro- okay. he dropped out. Okay. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> well, he, he's the author of 14 books, four on UFOs, 
UFOs for Roswell, Dawn of the Flying Saucers, Flying Saucer Fever, Intercept and Identify. That's the most recent one covering aerial UFO encounters from 1953 to 1954. The Honorable, the Venerable, Graham Rendell. Welcome, sir. Hello there. I'm not wearing this for a bet, don't worry. I'm actually in the middle of rehearsals for my wife's play, so I just happen to be playing a mayor uh, who is wearing a black triangle hat. Incredible. So uh, uh, We're going to get into some black triangles. I, if, you haven't, uh, if I'm correct here, I don't think you've covered those specifically yet in, in, in your books, but I have a feeling, maybe a hunch, that they're coming. Well, you, you say that. Um, I have actually, there's a brief reference to them in the Foo Fighters book. So there was a, spit, a Spitfire pilot over in Northumberland in England uh, encountered four at something like 22,000 feet in January 1944, I think it was. Mm. So that's still something I'm trying to chase down some more details about. Uh, but that's the only reference so far. Yeah, triangles don't really enter into it in terms of airborne sightings until much later. Amazing. Now, Graham, uh, for those of the folks who are listening who aren't as familiar with what your work, uh, you know, how often you're writing these books, you, you mentioned before we started the show, you're you're always writing, you love writing. Uh, mm. What is kind of the, the cadence for you? And I mean, you're releasing these books on, I feel like every six months-ish or so. What, what Do you have a roadmap that you have a, you know, a trajectory here? What, what's, what, what do we look forward to? To be honest, Nathan, they just get released when they're done. Um, there's, no, there's no sense hanging on to them or, you know, for any longer. I mean, I, I just want them to be out there so people can appreciate them, really. Um, and it's what I do. So, I've, as I mentioned to you before, you know, we started, I've always loved writing. I, I used to write magazine articles before I started writing books. Um, and I would just write for pleasure anyway. So, writing is not a chore. It's not something I, I sort of dread. I don't really get writer's block. Um, I did have a period of time after I had a, a concussion back in about 2016 or so um, when I kind of lost that kind of mojo and I couldn't write for a little mm -hmm. while until, you know, my head became descrambled or whatever it was. Um, so I had a bit where a bit of time when I couldn't really write anything, but thankfully that, that's, in the, that's in the past now. So yeah, I get up in the morning. If I'm not doing anything else then seven o'clock, I'm sitting at a, at a desk in the house with a cup of coffee and I'm just writing. Um, and then other times, you know, I've got a spare hour and I'm out and about, I'll, I'll find a, a coffee shop somewhere um, and I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll have the laptop with me wherever I go. Uh, so if I'm on a train or, or whatever, then, you know, it's a, it's a perfect place to write and I don't need quiet. You know, I can sit in the middle of a busy coffee shop or in the middle of a busy railway carriage um, and I, I'm totally fine about writing. Uh, I can just, you know, zone in on what I'm doing. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much what I do. So yes, the books might come out quite quickly, but actually, the this, this series that I've gone into now, which is this um, these kind of aerial kind of you know, encounters books, like certain years, they almost write themselves to to a certain point. Um, that you know, it's it's a formula now that seems to be tried and tested. Um, I've already this is like what the third one now, uh, in uh, and intercept and identify. So they're they're, they're not easy to write. When that that's probably too. That, uh, I can't really say that, but they're not difficult. Um, there's something I can just, yeah, I can not churn out either. That's the wrong phrase. But it, it, it's not just a case of having to think, oh, what do I go right now? Um, Wait, so you're saying there's a lot of material in the historical record yeah. about UFOs that you're not just making this stuff up? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, but also it's stuff that, you know, is out there but never featured in books that certainly I read in the, in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. and, and they covered a lot of things. So you, you'd get... Um, books that had you know sighting after sighting after sighting but it, you were lucky if you got like two or three lines about each one or a paragraph or two about each one um, 
but there are very, very little detail beyond that. And I used to be, you know, I, I might be like you, I don't know, but I used to scratch my head and think, I want to know more about this case. I want to know, you know, the what and the where and the, the back end of everything. Um, so these cases, I, a lot of them, I just, I've just never seen them anywhere in print before. Uh, but the intelligence files are there, and it's just a question of digging them up and looking through them and, and basically pushing them out so people can read them for themselves. Because, you know, there might be somebody like me uh, who was just starting out on that journey all those years ago, who, who's out there now, who's got the same kind of quest for knowledge and, and that they're getting it from somewhere else. But if they're picking the books up, hopefully that'll address some of the, you know, the sort of like the concerns they have about, you know, why I'm not reading more. Love it. Love it. All right. We lost DJ. It looks like he is back. DJ, let's do a mic DJ. test. Test, test, test. Graham Randall. Hello, sir. sir. How are you doing? <laughs> all right brother um I, I have to mention uh debs is not here today her son is having a birthday party that she is planning uh and you are one of her absolute favorite if not her favorite person in this community as a whole um not only just because you're you grim rendell as a person but also because you're a researcher uh and, and author so i think you guys share that same passion um, and you know, what's funny is as Nathan was talking, I was trying to think of, a th he used the word curious and he also, he, he described, uses him, uh, that word to describe himself, uh, and me. So I was, I was thinking if there's one thing that the entire community, e even when you have these people that are at odds is curiosity, a thread that runs through everybody. That's maybe the one thing. Yeah. Definitely curiosity, uh, and that's how I started. You know, it was something that a book was given to me, which was intriguing. And, you know, not and it, it just seemed, you know, there must be more to this, and, and it was obviously something that set me on this on this path to where I am now. But yeah, back in the day, there just wasn't enough information, um, and that maybe just because people didn't have access to the files that they do now. You know, with the internet now, you can find so much stuff, but also so a lot of things have been digitized. Or if they haven't been, then you can get to them other ways. So it's a, it's a lot easier um, today to be able to write a book like the one I've done than I would have been able to do when I was a teenager, when I was just starting out on that journey. I could never have done this back then. It would have been too difficult to self-publish anyway. You, know, you would have to look at a Vanti, uh, a Vanti press, so you'd be paying them money to, to come out with a limited number of copies of a book, which you would then have to hawk yourself um you know sort of thing and that wouldn't get you nowhere uh so yeah it, it was uh, it would have been very difficult whereas now it's a hell of a lot more more easy and with social media as well you can get sort of much more known uh, and the the you know the, the books that you write can be um can be advertised around the world so yeah it's Promo. great mm -hmm. yeah and i i know one thing i know one archive that frank really wants to get into and that's david marler's black triangle <laughs> everything that he's got right franklin <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm all about the the black triangles for some reason. They're just uh, a particular area of fascination for me. And um, obviously, with Graham's black triangular heart earlier on, uh, I, I do wonder <laughs> if there'll be any any delving into black triangles in in any future publications from Graham, perhaps. I'm sure I there got, will be. Yeah. Sorry, I got GJ. A question. No, that's okay. It just it just begged a question that I have a Frank. Um, so when you're looking at these black triangles. Uh, Frank, when you're thinking about it, like, and you're thinking about someone's reporting, seeing an entire craft, not just even like the wing form, but one that's like a legitimate Delta, you know, triangle. What's the first, if you were looking up and seeing that, what's the first question that would come into your mind? If you saw one of those? 
at, 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 at a range where you could make out, work out what, what exactly what you're looking at? I, I don't really know what the first question would be. I suppose you wouldn't know that until one of them appears above your head and then you're face to face with the thing. And then you have to just see what comes into your head at that, at that moment in time. But I think, I think the thing that, that always fascinates me about the black triangles is that they're probably, I suppose you could say, you know, the least ambiguous, you know, like certainly with, with, with orb type shapes or, or lights in the sky and things like that, there is a certain amount of, you know, there's a higher perhaps chance of misidentifications and that kind of thing. And when you're talking about, I mean, this is coming from the point of view of somebody who's never seen what I would consider to be, you know, an anomalous UFO as well sort of thing. So if if I had seen something that did a right angle turns and all the rest of it, that's, that's a bit different. But for me, reports of, of, of black triangles, what's particularly interesting is the thing that, people see them so close and they see the detail, you know, so close up that for me, it's just so unambiguous. And the most compelling reports that, that I've had um, about these, uh, that kind of thing where people are saying it's literally like, you know, between 50 and a hundred feet away and they can make out the detail on the underneath of the craft and, you know, street lights are shining off them and things like that. Um, so yeah, that, that's what makes it so, so intriguing for me, me personally. But I think um, in terms of the first question, I suppose it's the, the big one about black triangles for me personally is like, what what's the purpose? What are they actually doing? Why are they so close to civilian populations? And why do they have these lights on them? And, and why are they hovering so low to the ground? You know what I mean? There's a lot of things that don't make sense. And the purpose of what they're actually up to is, is the biggest question for me. And the other question is, who's flying them? Well, yeah. Who's, who's operating them? Mick asked that in the chat. Uh, Mick Ashworth said that. Um I, I've probably told you this before, Frank, a long time ago when we first started talking, but my my area of New York, the Hudson Valley, you guys all know about um, the, the, the co-authored book by Dr. J. Allen Hynek. You know that Linda Zimmerman has written, I think, four books now on Hudson Valley UFOs. And I have, of just my classmates or people that went to my high school the years I was there, I probably have five, six or more, uh, including one of them, her dad was a police officer. They watch one fly right over. She lives like uh, a couple streets over from the high school. Saw a, a black triangle fly in daytime, fly right over. And I've and I have multiple classmates that have seen that. Uh, that's where the the nuclear power plant was at the time. It's shut down now. But um, I just thought that was interesting. You know that my town happens to be one where many people have had that ex very experience you're talking about. Uh, but it wasn't cool to talk about it back then, the way it is now. So it's wild. Um, Graham, yeah, I, I think you think about who's who's flying it. You know, what is the type of entity that is is there actually? Um, is it a drone type thing? Which mm -hmm. it doesn't lend itself to that because of the fact that it's so big. That you, I was thinking that Frank was going to say something along the lines of like how many people are in there, you know, and when I say people, I mean how many beings are in there because uh, having a large craft would mean, okay, well, a lot of people can fit in there. Otherwise, you might see the metallic orb that Kirkpatrick was talking about, right? Well, that's assuming they're, they're uh, human dimensions, though. Okay, good. Yes. Meaning, uh, meaning, you mean if they're bigger, there could be less? Is that what you mean? It could be, or maybe they're non-corporeal as well that's no. another thing so you know they, they don't have a physical form so you know there Ooh. might be other ways yeah. 
uh, that um, you know whoever operates them. But also they could they could be human and they could be sitting you know like they like they do somewhere remotely uh, pilot them like they do with today's drones if they're some kind of human tech. I mean, again, you know, nothing's been ruled out yet as to who, you know what they are and who operates them. Um, yeah. So, you know, these are all basically hypotheticals at the moment because we don't have any hard and fast evidence about you know what they are yet. The part with the human tech, the the, the problem you get to there is the fact that you don't hear anything. Oh yeah. That you don't you don't hear an engine. Um, they they don't have any regard for what for airspace or altitude or things that somebody that was flying a terrestrial aircraft would want to adhere to some of these things like you can't fly um you can't fl fly you know 500 feet um or even below a thousand feet in a, in a populated area like that mm. um how are you doing it without making any sound and having a huge craft and then even frank's talked about in his show sometimes it's the wide end of the triangle that's facing forward and yep. the points facing aft so that doesn't jibe with with anything that's aerodynamic so there's no aerodynamics to it at all that would lend itself to creating lift so one it's of got the, yeah one of one of your comments uh, in the chat says uh from we're in a farm says you know they've never been seen on the ground um i'm sure david marlow has actually been asked about that before because he's also the authority on these things and i'm sure he said that, that there weren't any reports of them on the ground either so again that's a good point you know are they just airborne all the time um is it that they're just popping in from another dimension and popping out again, or are they traveling mm -hmm. distances or whatever, how they're getting here? Um, right. Or are they traveling through time? Because there's a, that's another thing that, um, especially when you come to orbs as well, people are saying, you know, are they some kind of remote viewing device uh, from the future? Um, so, you know, there's all these kind of things that, that crop up in terms of people's theories, but really the theories are, are like, um, you know, assholes, everybody's got one. Yeah, well, those are, those are, all those theories are good. Actually, what Christopher Mellon says when, when people ask him this question is he starts to talk about bedding down a craft. Hmm. So he's talking about what does it take to bed down an aircraft? First of all, you have to make an approach to somewhere. Hmm. You have to land to somewhere. There is a giant logistics apparatus to recover, to house, and to maintain that aircraft. And the size of some of these triangles, the size of the hangar, if you've ever seen a blimp hangar before, I've seen them in SoCal. They're absolutely enormous. So you have to have something, a, a giant apparatus to be able to not only, um, not only to, to, to uh, bed down the aircraft, to get something big enough to be able to, f hey, Keith Taylor is in the house. He's uh, one of our future guests. I'll tell you guys about Keith Taylor in a second. Um, and, and then be able to get it inside a hangar so that it's out of sight, it's out of it's hidden from satellites and, yeah. and spying eyes and all these. So that's what Christopher Mellon talks about. And I, I agree because I know that side of it. I was before I even was flying, I was aircraft maintenance for eight years. So you're gonna have a giant group of people that's that's looking after this craft, and that's why that one doesn't have a lot of legs. All those other hypotheses that you just posited to resonate with me, any of them, dimensional you know, appearing and, 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 and then disappearing and, and all these sorts of things. Well, just the size um, of them is huge, isn't it? I mean, some of them are quite are reported to be quite small, but there's, I'm sure I've heard them described as the size of football fields, uh, if not bigger. So you know, you ha you'd yeah. have to have a huge, yeah, you'd would, you would have to have a huge hangar or a, a kind of you know, a blimp shed 
wouldn't you, like an, air, an airship shed to yes. hide these things away in. Um, and they're going to stick out like a sore thumb. So even just the fact that they're being constructed uh, somewhere, unless they're hidden out you know, in the desert somewhere or, or, or wherever, you're not going to be able to construct like something like that in Britain, let's say, because the, the, we don't have enough kind of remote land in, in this country to be able to put one of those thing, kind of things together. Uh, and surely people would notice if, if things like that start springing up on, in the countryside. <laughs> Like the one that uh, Dr. Clark and company and, and Vinny, you know, like that, like, hey, what the hell is that thing? Anyway, let me turn over to money, Nathan, before I get too far out of hand. But let me just say this. Welcome, Keith Taylor. Keith Taylor is the uh, former NYPD uh, man. He's had so many different roles, including SWAT, but he's a professor at uh, John Jay College uh, in New York City, which is a famous criminal justice university. And I don't know, he has so many accolades, I can't name them all here, but he's going to be coming on with us because he's very interested to get law enforcement slash first responders trained on how to react when they get a UFO report. He feels like they're getting called out to these, um, you know, on these calls and they don't know what, what to do when they get there because they haven't been trained. Well, he, he, he's got something for that. Anyway, let me turn it over to Money Nathan. Yeah, that's super important stuff. Um, the other things that about the Black Triangle, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, kind of their non-standard characteristics, right? Well, that kind of makes you think of anti-gravitics, uh, where you don't need traditional airfoil design to be aerodynamic. Uh, when you introduce something like anti-gravitic technology, I mean, you, you kind of potentially open up the field to a lot of other speculative uh you know, avenues, right? So it doesn't oh, yeah. necessarily need to be housed in a hangar. Maybe you can, you know, fly it into the ocean. Maybe there's a, you know, Maybe. some sort of base down there. There's a lot of ocean, right? So if they can get in and out of these mediums without any sort of disturbance because of that anti-gravitic technology or mass displacement or whatever, then yeah. that opens up a whole new, you know, sort of ball game. Um, I, and we mentioned Terry Loveless, and that's the only case actually I'm thinking of where, he indicates that it did land. I mean, there was that initial sort of, he talks about that kind of like the beam or the laser points that kind of uh, painted their, their campsite. But then when he was waking up and looked outside of the tent, it, it seemed as if there were, you know, beings on the ground outside that were entering or exiting the craft itself. So that may be the one incident that I can think of, of a black triangle sighting and potentially being, you know, on the ground. Hmm. Um, yeah. And then all the people inside, which was really scary when he talked about scared yeah. children. I think that chilled all of us. Sure. And a mixture of people. Right. He mentioned right. seeing uh, what appeared to be uh, military personnel, human beings, uh, in addition to non-human beings. So some sort of collaborative effort between humans and other entities. Uh, so a lot of speculation there, of course. Um, speaking of speculation, I wanted to get, you know, Graham, we're going to talk about a lot of things on the show. It's going to bounce around different things. But I, since it's so fresh, I wanted to get your take on the NASA UAP panel and briefing that happened this week. As a, as a historian, uh, when you hear things like Sean Kirkpatrick saying about these orbs, these metallic spheres being sighted all around the world, I'm sure you're going, yeah, let me tell you more about that. So what can you <laughs> tell us about, about those kinds of sightings in the historical rat record? How far back yeah. did they go? Well, let's, let's just like uh, preface that by saying that, you know, having NASA briefings like that, even if it was just some kind of preamble to a briefing or preamble to a study, is nothing short of miraculous because you wouldn't have, you know, if anybody had said 10, 20, 30 years ago that we were going to have this kind of thing, 
um, with you know NASA scientists and other specialists and people from you know connected with or part of the DoD on a public forum like that and being televised live and news channels around the world picking it all up, you know, you would think you're nuts uh, because you just wouldn't have predicted that. Then again, you wouldn't have predicted 2017 either. So, but it, it's it's amazing from a historical point of view as to what hasn't happened and what is happening now. So let's get that out of the way to start with. Um, and in terms of orbs, yeah, I mean, there's been some discussion on UFO Twitter this morning about um, the 1944 sightings, and uh, Marek von Renkamp had um, you know posted the, the the copy of the newspaper article talking about silver translucent spheres. Now that did actually appear in an American newspaper. Uh, it was talking about certain sightings that were alleged to have happened in Western Europe in 1944, uh, and that U.S. Um, Air Force crews were seeing certain things. Now, those spheres were seen in the daytime, uh, the things that were seen at night about, around about the same time, and actually a lot earlier, if you, if you read the Foo Fighters book that I wrote, uh, UFOs Before Roswell, it, it comes clear that this kind of thing, in terms of lights in the sky that followed aircraft or were just seen, um, happened a long time, uh, much earlier than sort of October, well, actually November 1944, when the what people term Foo Fighters started as a phenomenon. Uh, you can trace some of the sightings that are in detail back as early as, say, August 1942 in, in terms of the RAF sightings. But actually, there are hints and then more definite information in terms of intelligence files that I've looked at, uh, which hopefully I'm going to write a sequel to that book at some stage or, or publish it, which, <laughs> which um, go back to March 1940, uh, there are intelligence documents which talk about um, strange lights following airplanes, following our bombers over Germany for distances up to 250 miles in some some instances. So, you know, there's things going on back then that people, you know, should maybe think, well, look, this has gone a lot further back than, you know, the kind of established wisdom, if you like. And I'm still trying to get my head around a lot of the stuff and what it implies. Um it's not a case of these are German night fighters because actually March 1940 was before the first German night fighter unit was set up during the Second World War. So it's not as if these are, you know, sort of uh, aircraft chasing after the bombers, but for some reason not shooting them down. So, yeah, uh, Nathan, and that's a long-winded answer to your question there. It goes a lot further back. And from a historian's point of view, the stuff that simply hasn't, you know, sort of uh, seen the light of day yet. Um, and I'm probably one of the few people who's actually going through this information to try and sort out, you know, what it actually means. And I'm still not entirely sure either at, at this stage. I don't have a, a kind of handle on what the Foo Fighters were or the things, you know, that happened before that. I just, I use that term to cover the whole of World War II. But, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a real mystery. And how they fit in with later sightings, so you know Kenneth Arnold and, and the stuff that comes afterwards. Um, again, I'm I'm in the dark as well. You know, you know what's very interesting about this, Graham, is that the thoughts of those men um, that were flying those craft in in '42 when they were seeing these and looking at it and being as perplexed and amazed yeah. and and wanting of, of of an understanding of what this is that's flying near them is there in some you know something that's spitting oil out of a piston pushing you know b25 or something right um and today somebody you know either ryan graves had the exact same question decades later and even someone who's flying a fifth gen f-35 that's that's encountering these has the exact same question and they're no they're not a whole lot closer to an answer they're just like you know intel's telling us they don't know what these things are that's true no and closer. some of the 
some of these crewmen were interviewed, you know, years after the event, uh, you're talking about the 1980s when they were still alive. And they had no, they were no further forward as to what they were. And, and you know, really some of the uh, sightings, uh, reports had actually gone up the food chain in terms of the of the, of the, the ladder uh, to various staffs and, and, and intelligence agencies. Um, but then they'd heard nothing you know, back because obviously that's not the way it works. You know, you send information up. You, you probably know this as well as anybody, DJ. You send, you know, you send the information up the food chain in the military, but it never comes back down to you as yeah. to what the answers are. Um, so, you know, you can understand why, why they, they never heard anything back. But in post-war years as well, you, they, they may have thought, well, you know, we might get the answers at some stage. Um, and yet, you know, there were 40, you know, 40 years on kind of thing and, and people were still asking the same questions, albeit about different things because obviously time had moved on and the objects had changed. Um, so it wasn't like lights in the sky anymore and it wasn't, you know, sort of silver balls. It was disc-shaped objects. You know, cigar-shaped objects, what we probably call Tic Tacs nowadays. Um, you know, that was that was the name back then. That was the name I remember from reading books in the seventies was cigar-shaped objects. Um, you know, and that probably means torpedo-shaped as well, because things that were classed as torpedo-shaped were seen during World War Two. They're actually in the intelligence reports. So again, you've got this. You know, what goes around comes around. <laughs> the things that were seen then, they might be slightly different in terms of terminology and maybe even the way they operate. But it's still the same shapes that keep cropping up. Well, and two get, things before I, I I'm sorry. Yeah, Go sorry. Ahead, I'm just one last thing. Sorry, I just yes, popped sir. in my head. Um, if you delve deeper in the reports, and there must be thousands of squadron uh, reports that I still haven't looked at yet, um, and maybe ones that just never got reported. I guess if you you could get a hold of all that information and see what the kind of you know the, the major types were, I bet we'd find more. You know, kind of these torpedoes would find more of these orbs, these you know translucent silver spheres, and no doubt we'd probably find some more triangles as well. Because that one report in January '44, I don't think that must be in isolation. There must be others. Oh, I like that. That there's more out there in terms of the types of craft. Well, two things that made, that made me think uh, when you were speaking. One is that one of the reasons that information, you know, uh, reported intel goes up and doesn't come back with answers is because, as Jim Semivan says, they don't have the answers. <laughs> they don't have an answer to it. And the other thing, oh, Smethers is in the house. Good morning, Smethers. Uh, and the other, the other one, and what Nathan would say is that in the arc of time, um, is so that we're basically the, the amount of time between World War II and now in the arc of time is like the same grain of sand. Oh, yeah. You know, so we haven't, you know, we, we think of it as a long time ago, but in the arc of time, it's really nothing. And really, so, lights, in the, lights in the sky following aircraft, you know, that, that continued. That, that happened in the Korean War. It happened, you know, afterwards as well. Um, your uh, correspondent there, we were in a farm. He mentions about the Australian case of a Foo Fighter in the 1950s. It's actually a chapter in this book. <laughs> it's, quite, uh, it's the one where I call it Wingtip Wingman. Um, and it was uh, a Royal Australian Navy uh, pilot who went on to be an, uh, you know, a fairly high um, kind of ranking official um, as a, I think it was an attache or something like that. I can't remember exactly now, um, but you know, that could have been a Foo Fighter case if that had happened in World War II because of how it transpired. And the, there are other cases in the fifties and sixties where airliners were, you know, either pursued or, or had um, lights parallel to the wingtips and all the rest of it. So, and those, if those had happened during World War II, they would have been Foo Fighter cases as well. And thank you. Thank you for that, that, uh, contribution we're on a farm so let's uh just to uh, to shift over to frank uh, i'd like to get frank to just give his take on the uh the hearings because uh as he likes to say he let it stew for a little bit he's let it marinate 
now he, now he's trying to throw it on the grill. Uh, and then after that, you know, I'm sure Frank, you'll have a question for Graham. Yeah, sure. Thanks. And yeah, I'm still letting it stew. To be honest with you, this is one that's taking its time to marinate. It's going to be one of those that's uh, for for the the perfect tenderness. I think it's going to have to sit for a few more days. <laughs> Left to go. There's, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to consider with it. But I think you know, there's obviously a lot of different opinions about how things are progressing with this NASA study. And I suppose you could say Kirkpatrick's actual leadership of the Arrow Office as well. And I think there's some similarities there. Uh, some people are really positive about it and other people are really critical about the way things are playing out. And as as usual with these things, I think, you know, the truth probably some sort of somewhere in between There's there's always going to be sort of extremes of, of thought in either, in either direction. Um, my initial thing with the, the NASA presentations and whatnot the other day was to see on BBC news, not only a story about this, taking it relatively seriously but an actual breaking news page with live updates throughout the day was i've never seen that before for for a ufo related you know story that, that's come out through the bbc for well, as long as i can remember so that has got to be good and the discussion was no x-files music in sight or anything like that it was just like this is what is being said and these are the people who are saying it and that's that's really good to see um but having said all of that, I do really understand people's frustration with both of those, which I think are sort of similar uh, in the way that people are getting frustrated with them, which is the NASA investigations and also the way that Arrow is being run. Um, I was talking to Dave about this quite a bit over the last week, and I came up with this analogy of somebody sat on a filing cabinet full of very important information and the public wanting answers about that very topic. And they go, okay, yeah, we'll commit to finding where this information is being kept. And really, to a lot of people from the outside, it's glaringly obvious that it's in the, the drawers right underneath where you're sat at this very moment. Like, you know, and, and it does feel like that. I mean, I, I, since I've been looking into the UFO topic, you know, relative newcomer compared to many people have been looking into this pretty deeply for a few years now, but it, it becomes quite clear that the best places to look, if you had access to anything you wanted and you wanted the best information to get to the bottom of this topic, you would go to probably two places, the the US government military IC databases that, that have got all the sensor systems feeding into it and all the rest of it from over the last however many years, and NASA, you know, and these are the very two places that, that these two efforts that I've been talking about are, are based. So you, you can sort of understand the frustration there that things are playing out very, very slowly and it's all kind of, you know, a trickle down effect kind of thing as, as we're going along. Um, but yeah, what, what do you reckon about that, Graham? Where, where do you sit on, on how all this is playing out? Do you think it's, oh, yeah. uh, are, you, are you positive about it? What do you reckon? I'm positive that it's actually, you know, more than we had 10 years ago and further back so that's a start and I, and I guess you're not going to expect that everything's just going to get put out there and go right yeah we don't know what's going on it would be nice if they did show some truly anomalous footage rather than you know three lights uh, equidistant um you know from each other and then say oh these are commercial aircraft um was it me or was it like very strange that they were it looked exactly the same distance from each other the one in the middle um that it, it, it was one of these kind of low-hanging fruit things, I think, that you know, you pick something that can be written off quite easily, whether it's true or not, to, to you know, what they say about what it was. Mm-hmm. And then that just kind of sows doubt in people's heads because then that's a job done. They don't have to come out and say, look, this is definitely not something. All they've got to do is just you know, cast enough doubt. 
and then that basically tinges everything else that they talk about. Um, you know, so it, it's it's quite surreptitious in a way in the way they come out with this this kind of thing. And that's me being cynical um, because then they go on to then dismiss one of the kind of the groundbreaking you know, uh, uh, you know three videos that came out in December 2017, uh, the Go Fast, and then. They're suggesting it's well, it's not go fast, it's go slow because it's only doing. They reckon it's only doing forty miles an hour. Um, now I'm not entirely sure of the of the maths of it because I'm no maths wizard, and, and I haven't been able to, to like kind of check the figures. And I'm going from what, what other people say on this as well that it's not necessarily the case that that was the figure, and that maybe assume a certain set of variables which may not or may or may not be true. Again, I'm I'm not entirely sure about that. I'm not an expert, but. The one that they should show is Gimbal, because Gimbal looks, it's one of those that it certainly made me sit up and take those. Um, why doesn't it make them do the same? Why aren't they putting that up and saying, okay, we don't know what this is? You know, it might have a purely sort of mundane explanation, and there may be some truth behind what other people are saying that it is. I don't necessarily believe that myself, but, you know, you can't rule it out 100%. But at the same time, it just looks so strange in the way it flies, the way it turns. And when you hear the audio track about it going against the wind and all this kind of stuff, that it, it, it's the most anomalous of the recent footage, as far as I'm concerned. And therefore, why shouldn't it be put up front and center in a, in a huge presentation like that, where there's a lot riding on it, for them just to own up and say, we don't know what this is. Because that would go a long way to actually address a lot of people's concerns that NASA um, and everybody else, by extension, aren't necessarily 100% behind what they're doing. You know, is this just a kind of you know, um, a, 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 you know, a kind of lip service to, to people's concerns and fears and quests for the truth and all the rest of it? So, is it a case of you know they dredge, they dredge some footage out where maybe not many people have seen it before? It's fairly easily explainable, but they can pre present it as um, you know, sort of something which is a bit of a mystery, and then say, "Oh well, this is really what it is," and everybody goes away. Well, oh, okay, just nods the head, and then they will use that. That kind of knowledge will then tinge everything else that come out with afterwards. Because if that's written off nice and easily, then pretty much everybody else could be as well, because that's how people think. So um, you know, we're not talking about people who look uh, you know, inhabit UFO Twitter here. Um, we're talking about general public watching this presentation so you know you can see how it's dressed up um and then you get a lot of people coming on and they've got quite nice titles and, and they're obviously quite authoritative and people are, you know, have got a lot of respect probably in the, in the scientific community um so yeah people are going to listen to what they say now does that mean to say they're experts in ufos well no because nobody's an expert in ufos um but <sighs> They, they they do just show this stuff that is easily explainable, but they don't show the stuff that is truly you know remarkable. And I think they'd be much better served every time they have one of these. It's just putting gimbal up every time and saying, "Do we know what this is yet?" And if they don't, then go away and come back again. And the next time they put one of these up, put it up again and say, "Do we know what this is yet?" Um, and that would, I think, in my eyes, would give them a lot more credence because they would be looking at something truly uh, you know um, abnormal. Yeah, I think it's um, it's kind of a, a worrying sign for anybody who's interested in this topic and, and really wants answers as well, when the majority of clips that are shown seem to be selected because they have mundane explanations. Like, there's a, these, these efforts uh, are underway because of the clear public interest 
in this topic. I mean, if you look at like Joe Rogan's interviews with various UFO related people and the, the movies that come out, there's clearly a massive audience for this because people are really interested in it. So then why, if, if that's clear and that is driving these efforts at the moment that are going on, whether it be NASA or Arrow, or whatever it might be, why then would you choose the most mundane videos you can find to show? Because there are, there are ones like Graham said, Gimbal, you know, even presenting the Nimitz case that are clearly already publicly available. There's nothing classified there. They're already on the internet. Why not talk about those and point towards them as being a clear example of why we should be taking this seriously. But the ones that ended up getting trotted out are the boring ones that, that, you know, could have other explanations. And there's even a question there, I suppose, as to have they been selected because they have, Monday and explanations and they want people to get all excited about it and then a couple of months down the line they can reveal the the prosaic explanation but it also made me think as well and this is what I was uh, I wanted to ask ask you Graham as well with your um his, historian's knowledge of the uh, UFO topic um I pulled this quote up just to make sure I got it right uh, major uh, major general john a samford in 1952 um said quote there have been a certain percentage of this volume of reports that have been made by credible observers of relatively incredible things. It is this group of observations that we are now attempting to resolve, unquote. Obviously, a well-known kind of quote all the way from back in 1952. And then Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, 2023, quote, only a very small percentage of UAP reports display signatures that could be reasonably described as anomalous. For the few objects that do demonstrate potentially anomalous characteristics, Arrow is approaching these cases with the highest level of objectivity and analytic rigor, unquote. Very similar, even though the word is slightly differently. They're basically getting at the same point. You know, there's a small percentage that are really interesting and we're looking into it, but, you know, these are, how, how, how many years is that? Like 70 I think years apart? <laughs> I think there's something they're not saying, though, to add to those quotes, because if you look at the Blue Book um, special report number 14, which came along in, what was it, 1955, it was released, um, and I'm building up to it in, in, in Intercept and Identify, they did the same kind of thing where they said, look, you know, we can explain a vast majority of all these cases to a certain degree. Um, but the thing what they did, they did say in that report was, we can probably explain the others, the unknown, if we had more information. And that'll be the bit that they're not saying here. It's because, you know, that's what they're looking for. And you can see that, you know, Arrow and everybody who's gone before them, they are, they are to a point confused about the, the sightings that don't make any sense. But there'll be this kind of, you know, sort of background of, if we only had more information, we'd be able to say what these were as well. And that's what we obviously think as well, but we're looking at it from a different point of view where, where we think that there might be something else to it. But from the scientist's point of view, you know, if they've got an unknown, that all they want to do is narrow it down to something because uh, it just means that they've got, they haven't got enough information to do that. And I think that's the unspoken thing here. I think if you pin, if you ever pin that arrow down and maybe some of these other people, these experts, especially those two experts that, that trotted off for the, um, was the Congress uh, thing last year, um, you know, because they had a similar thing where they had all these kind of explainable footage up there, um, you know, that they showed the, the so-called two experts. And I think, you know, the, the kind of like their sort of opinion, I think might well be, you know, I might not be right here, but I think their opinion is probably... If we had more information, we'd be able to say what these things were as well, and they'd turn out to be mundane. And it's a it's a it's a Robinson panel version two point zero because their um, you know recommendations came along with the same things. You know, all we want to do is educate the public. 
show them what they're looking at, show them the misidentifying things that are just ordinary and mundane. So they're seeing aircraft that, you know, they're thinking, you know, UFOs mm -hmm. or there's something else, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, the Blue Book Special Report uh, 14 had a similar kind of underlying theme to it, that there was just, you know, things that were being seen that were misidentifications or were just, you know, mundane objects anyway. Um, and I'm pretty sure, you know, there's a bit of that thinking here as well. Um, because also, do we know what you know Sean Kirkpatrick's feelings are about UFOs? Has he ever said anything about them before he was picked for this? You know, do we know what his kind of you know his history is in terms of weather phenomenon? Does he have has he had any public stance on it beforehand? Um, it, when Eustace uh, and scientists they would get interviewed in the seventies and eighties about this kind of thing. Um, there, or, or people who spoke on the space topics, such as Sir Patrick Moore in in Britain, who used to hold, ho, uh, host the Sky at Night. When you, they were asked about this kind of thing, they would say, "Oh, you know, there's nothing to it. Um, it's just people misidentifying things." Yes, space is, is advanced. There could be other civilizations out there, but they've never visited here. So you know, you've got to get past all that before you get to uh, people who have a truly open mind. Um, I might be entirely wrong. You know, it, it could be something that, that they do have open minds, that they are willing to entertain all kinds of suggestions. But I just have this sneaking suspicion that really when it comes down to it, they're just looking for more information that when they get it, will say these things are just, you know, misidentifications of ordinary objects. There's, they haven't built up the trust with you. You don't, you don't have yeah. that trust. And but I'm not. I'm naturally suspicious anyway, my DJ. Yeah, it's, it's totally understandable. I mean, everything that that they've done is consistent with, hey, don't trust them because even if they did get answers, they're going to house that information, silo it, and you won't get it. What the, what I would say though, and sort of answer to, I've had this conversation with Frank and maybe with Nathan, but uh, I've said rhetorically, how many hours do you think they spent going over videos and selecting? very specific videos for each one of these engagements with the public. I could guarantee you they've probably had hours of meetings about this and probably went over, you know, a couple of dozen different ones. And the reason that they've chosen the ones they have are very specific. So in, in order to understand why they chose them, you have to leave your, uh, your perspective and go to their perspective and say, my objective as DJ or Graham or Nathan or Frank is that I want to understand what's going on and I want a clear picture of the best stuff that we're looking at visually that they've captured so I can get a sense of, of what this craft is and what its capability is. Their objective is not that for, for, for our purpose. Their objective is to give you just enough to say that we're showing good faith on yep. this topic, but we're going to give you something that's ambiguous and refutable. If you look at them, they chose uh, what I think is one of the most amazing videos I've ever seen in this topic is the Jeremy Corbell pyramid video. Not triangle, but pyramid video. And they know that that has been widely disputed, debunked, not believed, um, and that if you were to go over, if you were to take the whole of the UFO community, you would be at least three-fourths on the side that says, this is nothing. It's a, it's a, and a to do with the aperture of, of the device they were looking at through, et cetera, or the camera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so they picked that one. They picked the one where uh, they kept having to ask, uh, uh, um, I can't remember, uh, during the hearings, hey, can you rewind? Let me see that again. It's going past the cockpit too quickly. Mm. Can't see anything. So everyone, then they, the, the one this time with those three objects, it's like, wait, 
what are they doing here? I, I don't even know what I'm looking at. So all of those were chosen. The only one that was decent was the one that you talked about with the, uh, the metallic um, orb, which is really interesting because uh, it was picked up on radar. And it, it means when he says metallic, it's picked up on radar. That's good because sometimes what if it's just an orb of light, but, but a radar sweep is not able to capture yeah. that. So you, you, know, you have some corroborative uh, sensor data there in terms of uh, 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 radar. So their objective is not to give you exactly what would make all of us look at it and say, oh, that's clearly an, an anomalous craft that's doing something that we don't see airplanes do. So, man, this is like – and the government's giving it to me, so I know it's legit. That's not what they're – that's not their objective. Their objective is to give you just enough to keep good faith and slowly, slowly – Nathan talked about this on Liminal Frames for those of you who want to um, uh, go, go back and listen to he and Exo – um, they're going to slowly drip this out until more and more people are talking about it at the water cooler, et cetera. So anyway, that's that's what they're trying to do, which is different than what we want. So we're we're misaligned in what our goals are. So anyway, um, I just want to throw this out there. We got about ten minutes left, twelve minutes left. So if I want to go around the horn with uh, anything that uh, people want them to consider, et cetera, et cetera, starting with. The money man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, okay. So I, I know we're going to go around the horn. I want to give some brief thoughts on just what we just what we talked about with the NASA thing, and because I know it is it's such a hot topic. Um, I I like it. I, I think it's good. I think we we need uh, dry, boring, rigorous science to be taking this seriously. And uh, as much as those of us in the community that, you know, we can bemoan this and, and hate that it's not going as fast as we might like, we need those serious academics to enter into the conversation. And they're only going to enter into the conversation if they can do it in this very methodical, slow, you know, bore you to sleep process, um, because that, that's how they approach science generally and and in this topic in particular has such a stigma on it they talked about stigma at the beginning of the entire panel their entire careers or their uh their disciplines have a tremendous amount of stigma even preventing them from taking it seriously so the fact that they're there the fact that they're willing to look at this and and not play the x-files music and i know i'm sure some of them are having the snicker factor about it even if they aren't saying that publicly they still privately think oh my gosh you know i have to look at this stupid ufo stuff all that said is the, the, the benefit of it, I think, is that by by approaching it from that very uh, staid, banal sort of perspective, eventually they're confronted with something that they cannot they cannot ignore. They cannot write off anymore. So if they've if they've applied every degree of scientific rigor toward an anomalous event, as Kirkpatrick alluded to, that very small percentage of of events that have good data and are seemingly performing in anomalous ways. Those are the cases that, that you cannot ignore. And that's what we would want as the public. We would want them to be able to say, yeah, we've ruled out all this stuff. We've done every single thing you can possibly imagine to discount and write off whatever this encounter happens to be. And, 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 and we still have no idea how it's doing what it is doing. And then that, that tells you that gives the public a sense of, well, geez, like it's past every single scientific uh, you know, process that we can throw at it. Therefore, it must be something that we just do not understand. 
and, and then that leads to a whole host of other questions which follow. The other thing I will say is I, I think it's it's really timely that we have this NASA panel stood up, that we have uh, this very public-facing effort uh, underway. That's what we would want to be in place before other bigger kinds of revelations might be coming, right? We, I mean, and here I'm just talking about the thing that Chris Mellon said in Politico, you know, that he's had very credible witnesses on the inside who he has referred to Congress, who he has referred to Arrow, who have indicated to him they have been working on crash retrieval and reverse engineering projects. So what happens if we get more and more announcements like that, not just from the partisans like Chris Mellon or Lou Elizondo, the people who've always been beating this drum forever, but from other names? What happens if we have that? And then the public's like, oh, crap, you know, I hope we have I hope we have some some smart people who are already thinking about this. Well, it turns out we do. We have a whole panel of smart people from NASA, an organization with an incredible reputation, not just in the United States, but around the world. We've got a panel of experts, and fortunately, they're here to take a look at this and to take it very seriously. You would want that in place as opposed to being, hey, here's a massive revelation from some, from some credible nonpartisan people. And then everybody being flat footed being like, oh, crap, we don't have anybody dedicated to this. I guess we're really behind the eight ball here. Well, no, we do. So the pieces are moving. The, the, the pieces on the chessboard are moving. And they're in place. And I think that that's what we want to see. It is glacially slow and it's annoying. I know for all of us who've been, you know, fans of this topic forever, but I would argue it has to be, and it has to roll out in this way for the world to take it seriously, for the world to be prepared for something as big of an announcement as what we, those of us on the inside or, you know, who, who have been fans of this topic forever, what we think is, is going to happen here. I just no. want to say I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think that, well, it's, it's frustrating to agree with that position, <laughs> but yes. So, Frank, uh, take it away on that, that topic, and then it'll go to Graham. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and keep this relatively brief because I could probably go off on one uh, in a few different <laughs> <Yes>. directions here. <laughs> yes. But I think, yeah, I mean, my, my thinking with it, it, again, going back to that kind of frustration with the processes and things like that, I do agree, Nathan, with what you're saying, that it is definitely good to have this kind of, you know, very dry kind of scientific process there and all the rest of it. And the knock-on effect and the way that ripples out into, you know, the wider world as well, it definitely has, you know, a positive impact in terms of, you know, spreading the word about the topic and things like that and, and all the rest of it. But I think, again, going back to the frustrations thing is that we already kind of have those cases or that case, in my opinion, which is the Nimitz case, you know, in terms of it's got pretty much everything that you, that you could want. And if you were going to do um, a rigorous scientific investigation into this topic, the first thing you would do is go after the best case that's got all of the data there. And as, as Scott Bray said in the, in the, the congressional hearing, they have actually reviewed uh, or at least Scott Bray did with the UAP task force. It's not clear how much of that was passed across to Sean Kirkpatrick in his office, but Scott Bray did say that they'd reviewed the classified data as well as the publicly available data and all the witness testimony, and that case was still unidentified and, and considered to be anomalous. And if I was doing a scientific investigation, I'd just go there. I mean, you know, we, we say it a lot, don't we? You only need one case to be truly anomalous in order to make a case for it, you know? And for me, that's the case. And, and that's where I would like, you know, we hear about Kirkpatrick with Arrow and everything like that. And, 
uh, not having the accesses that they need to get to the IC's best sensor systems and all the rest of it. Let's just do that. Forget about all the rest of it. Let's just go for that case and find that data. And even if you can't reveal to the public, you know, what the data consists of, even if you can just say very, very clearly, you know, we've looked at this data and it's unambiguously something really anomalous and, and so on. Let's get the best and brightest in to analyze the data. You know, that's that's what I would like to see. Anyway, I think I'll I'll leave it there, otherwise I'll go on and on. <laughs> my uh, yeah, thank you. Uh my um frustration is the probably the lack of a, a Chris Mellon, a Lou Elizondo, a Ryan Graves from Britain. Uh, that we don't have people like that who have been close to what's been going on, what's truly been going on um in terms of your know, proper kind of investigations not not necessarily somebody um in, in an office somewhere but actually somebody doing physical and, and in the field investigations into what's been go been happening and we don't have that here we have people who have been on the edge of this so we've had people who have you know worked a desk in whitehall and taken telephone calls and have passed on messages to other agencies who have you know very strange designations and to all intents and purposes are so secret that um, you can't get any information out of them. Um, you know you can't get freedom of information requests um, you know to find out what they've done and what they've published and all the rest of it. Um, so yeah, it's a complete enigma. Uh, and the information that does come out, um, you know, we can't really make much sense of it. So we've got a whole lot of stuff in this country, in the UK, that we're still trying to sift through. We have cases here which are completely, you know, ambiguous, such as the Calvin case. So, you know, Frank Lair's talking about uh, the Nimitz encounters from November 2004. We have a case from August 1990 that we're still figuring out, you know, trying to figure out what it was uh, and what it was doing in the middle of Scotland. Um, one August evening in, in, in 1990. Uh, there's a photograph now which has appeared, the, the actual true photograph rather than an artist reconstruction. Um, and actually the two are fairly similar, although the backgrounds are difficult, uh, different rather. But, you know, again, what was that? that that's something else truly, um, you know, kind of mysterious that nobody really knows what it was either so we've got a lot of things which are very very strange in this country but we don't have the same level of i guess people who were so close to it that we can call upon you know not that they can get inf information because of ndas and things like that but we don't have people who have an inkling um or, or some first-hand knowledge of what's been going on behind the scenes and i wish we did Graham, it's a re it's a reflection of the difference in our society and our culture. America, you, you know, the, the the child of of original child of Britain, it's a very combative society. It's a society that's uh, very rebellious, and you can see with what Lou did and what what Christopher did and what some of these guys did is they said, you know, Lou said, screw this, I'm giving up my job over this. I mean, so and and plus the the, the art of secrecy is something that we learned from the british and you guys are still the masters of it and so people don't want to come out and there are people there but they have made the decision that they're going to allow the u.s to to lead the way on this for whatever their reasons are they're not I, i've said before nobody's preventing anybody in the british uh hierarchy from talking about this that's their decision for what whatever discussions they've had and we could say we asked baptiste about this he, I, we asked him, why aren't the French? He said, do we have a program? He said, yeah, France has a program. We have information. We're, they're, they're, I believe that they're happy to let the U.S. 
And I, and I think Baptiste knows what the hell he's talking about, given the positions that he holds. And he says they're happy to let the, the U.S. lead the way to, on this topic and not talk about it. We could say the same of Spain. We could say the same, obviously, of the Italians, given what Lou told us. <clears throat> the Russians, uh, we could say the Chinese. So we could say any number of countries have decided that uh, it's not in their interest to reveal this information for whatever that reason is. I don't know because I'm not part of their culture. But they've the U.S., this combative, violent, um, rebellious group that we are, <clears throat> we've decided we're not going to take it anymore, and now here we are. So we're, we're a little bit ahead on, on it in terms of it. But, yeah, it would be great if other countries would say we're going to – well, that would answer – you know, a lot of questions, but a lot of countries just, for whatever their reasons are, don't want to. I don't think the U.S. is forcing them. I think they have agency to do what they want to do, but they've decided it's not in their interest to do so. And they're in unison, by the way. <laughs> it's not, there's no rogue country except us. So, anyway, um, let's go with uh, um, Nathan. Did you... Uh, remind me of where we're at. Um, or I'm just, good. I think uh, we pass it to uh, Frank. Yeah. Frank. Yeah. Do you have anything you want us to consider, Frank? Then just my lack of facial hair. Oh. Nope. Is it on mute, mate? Oh, there we go. School by error. That's a bit <laughs> had to happen once, didn't it? Um, but yeah, no, not, nothing in, in particular, really. I think it's quite a, an interesting discussion going on in the, the wider community, the UFO community, that is, uh, at the moment as to, you know, something's coming. This is something that everybody's discussing, but there's not actually a very clear indication of, of exactly what that's going to be. And, you know, there's there's so many different trains of thought on this. Um, and, and Nathan, you'd mentioned uh, just earlier on about having things like this um, NASA investigation and, and the Arrow office and bodies of, you know, of uh, officials and whatnot and, um, you know, scientists and academics and things being engaged with the topic. And that will be good to have in place if some kind of revelation is, uh, you know, presented to, to the to the public across the world. I, I suppose I'd like to, to ask you, you know, if you've got any thoughts on like, where that revelation is going to come from? Do you tend to think that it's more um, like an insider that's going to come out from a whistleblower point of view? Are we going to see some kind of direct revelation from whatever others might be visiting the planet? Or is it going to be like a, an official uh, a podium? What, what do you think? Yeah, good question. Um, I, I think it's going to come from a variety of places, um, some of which are familiar to us. Uh, Chris Mellon, I gave that example. Uh, that's one that, you know, Chris is always out there trying to move the ball uh, downfield. And, and I appreciate his efforts in that regard, uh, not letting us forget about what is happening. And because of his connections uh, and his high profile, he's able to, you know, to disseminate information and, and be taken more seriously than, than some others. Um, so there'll be, I think, we'll hear from voices like Chris uh, who have been, you know, champions of this. I mean, Gary Nolan too is a recent example. You know, who've been who, who's been very vocal. Um, but we're going to need more than that, and I think that we will. I mean, ultimately, that that's exactly what we have to have, right? We have to have the new voices who uh, who both are in, are from the inside. So some voices from the inside who we haven't heard from, but also some voices who are basically new to the topic or relatively new but who have authority, 
right? So we need some voices like that who who are saying to us, you know what? I didn't think this was a thing, but I've looked at this evidence now, and because of my position, uh, you can you can you can hear from them and go, geez, well if they think there's a there there, uh, there really must be a there there, right? So that, that that's the kind of thing that we need to have. Now, in terms of what we might hear from whatever this is, from the others, the other intelligences, whatever. I think, and I've, I've, you know, argued a lot about this, uh, or, or put forth some some thoughts on about, about this on liminal frames quite a bit. I think that we have to start getting a lot more comfortable with the with the understanding that non-human intelligence is radically different than anything we might understand it to be. Like we we might have some proximate understanding of what a non-human intelligence, uh, you know, totally different evolutionary line of thought might look like. But we really have no, there's no, there's no, there's no parallel. There's nothing we can be like, oh, well, you know, they should have a, a, they should make a statement like at a podium and, you know, like in Mars (laughs) attacks or something, you know, like these are such like anthropomorphic ways of looking at it. I I just don't think we're going to get that. I think that it's very likely that non-human intelligence looks at reality in a way that we don't fully understand that, that that they interact with us in ways that we don't fully understand and as a result the making of themselves known to us is not going to happen in the way we we might want it to in the way that we we have uh you know fictionalized that over so many years in our movies and everything i just don't know that it's going to unfold in that manner and that you know makes it very challenging right it makes it very challenging to uh, explain to understand uh, to to create new meaning and narrative out of it and and so there'll be a lot of work to do uh, you know but we've heard from those who are experiencers who are also telling us that because of the way that these uh, you know beings interact uh, there's a kind of um, information transfer that, that that happens at a at a deep you know conscious le- level uh, a level that we're not accustomed to receiving information from at least explicitly although we all talk about things like inspiration and intuition. I don't know where that came from. So we have a kind of corollary there, but if they're give, going to be able to interact with us at that level, that deep level of awareness, not just through this verbal or nonverbal communication, then uh, it's going to be an entirely different kind of ball game. I, I don't know that it's going to happen just with a flip of a switch. I think it's going to be a continual sort of unfolding uh, as we kind of, a, a dawning of a new world essentially, and that that process is slow. I guess the, it, you could look at multiple um, NHIs as well. It might not just be one. So some of them, we could be lab rats. And for others, um, any kind of contact could be um, incidental. Uh, and they might not even know they're doing it. It could be like the uh, Strugatsky brothers. Um, they're a Russian science fiction authors from the 60s or 70s. They wrote a book called Roadside Picnic, which uh, other people might know as a film by Andrei Tarkovsky called Stalker where there's a, a load of people, there's basically um, alien rubbish left on Earth, and it's very dangerous, um, and people's interaction with it. Uh, but it, it's just a case of, you know, maybe this is just someone's stopping off place that they come and, and, and have a picnic, and, um, you know, their interaction with us is, is purely, you know, incidental. It's just it's just something that happens, and they're not even aware of it. It's just like, you know, do you talk to an ant when you see it walk over the, si- uh, over the sidewalk? Uh, you don't. You don't stop to have a conversation with it. You know, why, why do we think, you know, why are we so kind of arrogant that we think that some you know, advanced technology or race might want to speak to us? What have we got to offer them? 
So there's a whole of things like that going on as well. Um, Arthur C. Clarke's uh, quote, I'm, much, I'm probably paraphrasing it here, but is you know something about uh, along the lines of you know they're not only you know we can't you know we cannot imagine it's just we we're incapable of imagining you know what they are and, and what their motives are and what they're doing here. Um, yeah, you know, it, I have it's... I have one answer to that though, Graham. What you said about the ant hypothesis. The reason that we would think that they want to communicate with us is because there are lots of people that everybody here knows that are saying they are communicating mm. with us. So that's the reason why I would think that. Yeah. <laughs> if, if they said, we're, we're having no communication at all, no, but there's all these people that are from Christopher Bledsoe to EXO mm. to uh, Jay King. I mean, you could, we could name off you know, tons of people that we all know that say that that's they're true. receiving. So, But not know. everybody who has kind of you know, encounters with these things or with strange True. objects has that level of communication. True. So that could be just one small part of it. That's what I'm saying about multiple, you know, there could be multiple yes. kind of actors here. You know, it's not For necessarily sure. just one. Well, and let's not forget too, that we communicate all the time, but we, we don't yeah. understand. <laughs> so how many times have you had a conversation with your partner and you're like, yeah, we're on the same page there. And then like you try, you, you, <laughs> you find okay. out like, Oh, you know, we weren't really on the same page. And even though we had a whole conversation about it, I came away with this understanding and they thought something entirely different and that's just human beings. Right. So imagine what we're dealing with here. Uh, if, if we're not talking about human interaction. That's a great point. Um, yeah, because if, if we're fallible in that way, imagine when we're dealing with something of a higher intelligence and we're trying to interpret what they're telling us, and I think even Nathan would probably agree, perhaps there's a certain amount of desire to what you want to take and extract from that that, uh, how, you know, that you're putting into how you interpreted that communication. There could be some of that in, in, that, in each of those samples as well. So it, 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 it is uh, that that that's a whole show that <laughs> we could go on that in, in answer to Frank's question, though, um, I think everybody on the panel here, Frank, um, is saying to us that uh, whistleblowers is going to be that next that next egg to break uh, that may provide something. So the an the answer is I don't know. That's my answer. But the people that uh, so me, DJ, I don't know, but people that I've spoken with, and I think, again, everybody in the panel has heard from from uh, different people that that know things that um, it's probably going to be uh, whistleblowers that that'll be that next, you know, step forward. Um, Christopher Mellon, when Nathan was talking about that, I was sort of looking at you know like a running back. You have these running backs that'll that'll uh, run to the outside and then look for a hole and sprint upfield. And Christopher Mellon is like this fullback that just kind of takes a handoff from the quarterback, and he runs a dive play going straight over, just r nailing the linebacker and the other linebacker. Now safety has to, like, take him down, but he's had, like, eight yards, you know, with each carry. So it's almost a first down each time. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah. I think, you know, an interesting point about Chris Mellon's article as well, and it's always one why I like to have a think about things before I present my take on, on the pod like you mentioned earlier. Part of that is to see if Chris Mellon's going to do an article because he tends to have them locked and loaded, doesn't he, ready to go whenever there's a big development. And I thought very interestingly in that particular article was that he mentioned that he's referred and he spoke to various whistleblowers about crash retrievals and whatnot. But very interestingly, he also said after that, rightly or wrongly, there were several others more directly involved that didn't want to go to Arrow because of concerns over Arrow's leadership. So 
that sort of it, it is what it is. But it would suggest to me that you know there's perhaps not a lot of faith there from those who've got the most significant direct involvement with these alleged reverse engineering programs. There's not a lot of faith that they're going to actually have their stories taken seriously, or or perhaps there's concerns around the actual. Um, secure system that was supposed to be set up for them to come forward and that kind of thing, and that they're actually probably not going to go to Arrow, at least for the moment. So I would suggest that whistleblowers is more likely to be the thing. I've been joking on on my pod that if there's a government official stands up on a podium, I will eat a raw mushroom live on camera. Uh, that's if it's this year, by the way. Just um, And I'm not a big fan of raw mushrooms at all, so hence why I would, <laughs> why I would do that. But I, I think there's very, very little chance... Uh, of of a government official coming out saying anything, I think most likely the the you know achingly slow pace of things with our own and these other efforts is probably going to, if anything, push people who perhaps were considering coming forward via official channels to do it um, off their own back. Perhaps go into a, a, a big media publication or something like that. I think the likelihood of us seeing that this year pretty high, but yeah, I don't think we're going to get it from any officials personally. Um, but we'll we'll see, eh? Yeah, I, I have to agree with you. And then, uh, I, not to throw this hand grenade in the room, but uh, the Lou Elizondo saying come back in five years in 2022, and then um, uh, John Ramirez talking about 2027 and all that. So, I mean, I don't, you know, it's, it's an interesting that they've thrown that out there. Uh, I don't know if anybody has any quick takes on that. And then uh, we'll start to go with uh, Cabby Goodbyes. Put you up there, Graham. Put you on the spot, Graham. No, I, I'm afraid I have no opinion one way or another. I don't know enough about, you know, I don't have any kind of in, particular insight into what they're speaking about. So I can't tell whether the dates they're, you know, they're, they're being bandied about, uh, you know, how relevant they are. And, and now that there's two different or multiple dates out there, then who knows? Um, you know, the next thing we're going to see is somebody with a world that the end is nigh, kind of like, you know, kind of sandwich board. Uh, That'll be the. Well, Graham, here's what's interesting about it, though. If you look at two people that represent different sides of Mm. the equation, and ironically, one of them really represents both sides, but the nuts and bolts, Graham Rendell, you know, Frank Jones' side, Lou Elizondo is is all over that. He has been a a, a, you know primary source for, for, for you and all of us, right? And John Ramirez actually straddles both sides because he's an experiencer and he's talked about uh, the Wu side, about having downloads and communications and interactions. So both of them have, are setting that approximate date. That's what's that's what's interesting is it, it's coming from two different people from two different perspectives, but the same time frame. Right, Nathan? Yeah, no, for sure. Um you know, there's something about uh, predictions, right? I think we we, we kind of hate them in a way. We um, sorry, Oops. we, we messed up backs there. We hate yeah. them and we love them uh, because uh, they're they're fun, they're titillating, they're exciting. Uh, but inevitably, in human experience, they often you know come and go. Every generation, they come and go, and we can point to history and be like, "Yeah, look how they were wrong there. They thought this was going to happen. They were wrong there." So I think we have a we have a, a valid reason to be skeptical about some of these predictions and claims um and i think we should i think we should approach that with a a, you know a dose of of healthy skepticism um that that will come to pass now that said 
I think it's hard to argue that uh, we're not going to be experiencing something pretty bizarre in the next few years. Uh, and that can and, that, and I'm strictly here speaking strictly about things that aren't you know alien intelligence at all, just where we are in our own technological development and advancement as a species on this planet. Uh, we are uh, playing with tools and technology that are, uh, you know, almost like rapidly advancing beyond our ability to understand them. Uh, you know, things like uh, we've already cracked, uh, you know, the the atom, but we're, we're talking about artificial intelligence now and implementing that in ways that uh, that are changing the world right now as we speak. And those changes, I believe, are only going to continue to accelerate uh, changes to our every facet of our life. You know how we how we learn, how we how we how we interact, how we do med medicine. Uh, all these things are going to be impacted by artificial intelligence, and that's a type of foreign intelligence to us uh, that that is you know only proximally understandable. Uh, so that to me is 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 basically certain. Uh, and then you add on top of that the the dramatic changes that are happening to our world with uh with our climate and our you know our the, the heightening tensions that we see with our with our politics i mean all these things are aren't getting better as far as i can tell i'd like them to um and so i think we are headed for uh you know it seems like we're headed for a precipice of some kind or another um i hope we get past it right i hope i hope that we do transition through that and perhaps we do it with the help of something else you know perhaps we do it uh with the help of others who may have who have been down that road before, who have learned lessons from their own past and are here to maybe help us transition through these very challenging times. That That's the hopeful, optimistic, and a way even romantic inside of me that is looking at these predictions and thinking, you know, there will be the best on the other end. Uh, on the other hand, maybe not, you know, maybe we have a great filter moment that we just don't get past. And I try not to dwell on that because I have kids and, you know, I like the world, so. Nathan offers our best hope. He would have been a great captain of the Battlestar Galactica. This I'm not sure. <laughs> I so say we all. Uh, he could have been a Dama. Um, so <laughs> let's go with, uh, and we'll go to our cabbie goodbyes with our, our new cabbie, Frank, uh, and the deliberative process that he goes through and the patience that he shows is one of the reasons why, and his, you know, his brilliant analysis is one of the reasons why we not only wanted his show on the Cab Network, but we wanted him to be in cab. So uh, luckily he was amenable to both. So let's go with cabby goodbyes, Franklin. Yeah, thanks everybody. A bit, I was a bit ranty today. I've ended up going on a couple of tangents there, but um, it's a it, brilliant, dis brilliant discussion as always. Always a pleasure, Graham, to speak to you, mate. And uh, look forward to your next book. I've got all of the other ones in the shelf behind me hey. there. With Graham's been kind enough to uh, to actually sign them as well. And uh, we've had the opportunity to have a, a pint or two here and there over the last couple of years. So I look forward to getting the next one, hopefully. And uh, yeah, thanks everyone. It's been a pleasure. And um, real quick, Nathan, before you go, Dr. Taylor here, something that we, we've heard Lou actually, actually the same senti uh, sentiment that uh, disclosure is not an event. It's a process. Most compelling evidence will not convince those who refuse to believe what they are seeing. So, yes, he couldn't couldn't be more right about that, Dr. Yeah, Taylor. So well said. Uh, yeah, this has been a great show. And, uh, you know, Graham, always a pleasure to speak with you. I'm going to be seeing you soon in you Roswell. Are. I will. So I will uh, bring a copy of your book so that I can get it signed uh, in person. That would be terrific. Uh, it's been several months since we've last seen each other. And I look forward to that reunion. And I look forward to what you will be saying there. Uh, and I hope those who aren't familiar with your work, who are listening or watching, they seek out your books. They add them to their bookshelf. 
this is a man who has devoted a lot of time, energy, talent to unearthing the amazing history of anomalous sightings in the world. And you are uh, setting yourself, selling yourself short if you're not uh, reading his content and getting brought up to speed on what all there is to know. If you do, you'll be ahead of the curve. You'll be ahead of everyone else who's new to this topic. So get those books. You can find them on Amazon. And you can find Graham as well on uh, on, on the podcast uh, sort of circuit. You know, he's he's around all the time. And uh, he's, he's a wealth of knowledge that, that you'll want to tune into. So Graham, again, thank you so much for, for being with us. Thank you, guys. And it's, all, it's always been a pleasure to meet you all in person, different times, different places. And um, I look forward to the next time we meet. And yes, Nathan, I will see you at the end of the month. Uh, and it's going to be hard for me to say it any better than Nathan just said it. Um, but I would say if, if you look at what you're seeing right here, this uh, the positivity and the brotherhood that you see here, this is what you need to look at to the community and say, yes, this is this is what's here. There's a lot of you know, stupidity that goes on. Well, just don't even don't even take part in it because there's so much you you make lifelong friends here. And that's what I feel like with th these gentlemen you see on the screen here. I have lifelong friends uh, as a result of being involved in this community in this topic. And that's the takeaway. The takeaway is not the idiots out there that are that are just trying to sort of split everybody apart and, and discredit people. But but see, you know, come to the community find people that you can really uh, bond with and form a lifelong friendship because when this show is long gone and it's not a show anymore, I'm still going to have Graham and Nathan and Frank as my friends, and that's the important part. Um, the, the shows and the ratings and the clicks and the likes, it's all bullshit. It's, it's not material. It, it's, not, it's not an issue. So, uh, Graham, um, it is an honor to, <clears throat> to know you as I was just saying there, to be your friend, uh, to watch you work, uh, and to be an example kind of how to be in the community and to contribute to the community. So thank you so much for your friendship and for your work. Um, and um, it's just an honor. Thank you. Okay, sir. Thank you, DJ. And thank you again for the invitation. It's always a pleasure coming on speaking to you, gentlemen. Yeah, it's this door's open. You just gotta be like, yo, I got something I want to talk about. <laughs> Message uh, any one of us that's on cab and uh and we'll get you on that calendar. So that that's a done deal. Okay. So uh as Julie likes to say, like and subscribe, comment on YouTube. It really does help if you would give us a rating on uh Apple Podcast uh or something like that. And and really the the purpose of those numbers is just that when we're trying to get somebody that is kind of teetered, they don't really know us, so they don't know if they want to come on. Sometimes they'll look at these metrics and decide, okay, I'll come on. It's not, you know, we're not making any money out of it, but it's just a matter of, of uh, trying to convince people to come and speak with us, like Bono from YouTube, for example. Frank, maybe you can arrange that, or at least Larry Mullen Jr. Uh, put in a good word. Yeah. <laughs> so for, for the guest of honor, Graham Rendell, for our cabbie, Frank, for my co-conspirator, enjoy fun and interesting UFO talk, Nathan. This is DJ. And for Julie in the chat, this is DJ saying peace out, one love. We'll see you down the road. And, you know, we're always wondering what's up around the bend.